I'll be reading from uh, several parts of the Bible, but first we'll start with 1 Timothy uh, 3, 16, and verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 12, verse 6. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Now, finally, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say that the words of the Lord are flawless? Did God really say that the law of the Lord is perfect? Did God really say that the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy? Really? Who believes that anymore? I mean, can the Bible really be trusted? Didn't men write the Bible and humans make mistakes all the time? I know the Bible says that men were inspired to write it, but isn't that just an easy way of saying, don't question the Bible? God said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? God wrote it, so we can't question it. We've just got to believe in blind faith. I mean, the Bible is not a science book. It's a religious book and hasn't real science disproved the Bible anyway. In thinking about that question, I looked up the word science in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and gave a couple of definitions. The first one was knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through scientific method. So what does that mean? So I looked up scientific method in the same dictionary, and it says principles and procedures for the systematic pursuit of knowledge involving the recognition and formulation of a problem, the collection of data through observation and experiment, and the formulation and testing of hypotheses. So I would assume that the testing of those hypotheses is to see if those hypotheses or theories are true or not by observation and experiment. But then the dictionary gave a second definition to science, definition number two, a system or method reconciling practical ends with scientific laws. That's really interesting. And I ask myself, what is the practical end in our world today when it comes to science instigated by Satan's question back in Genesis 3 
did God really say when he started the whole process of doubt? And the practical end is that God doesn't exist or God is dead. Therefore, if God doesn't exist, we must reconcile scientific laws to that assumption. And voila, you've got evolution and everything that stems from that, including the fact that I am now God and I can do and think anything that I want. You know, we used to hear the term empirical science. When was the last time you heard that term? It seems to be mostly a thing of the past. You see, empirical science, again, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is relying on experience or observation alone, often, listen, without due regard for system and theory, capable of being verified or disproved by observation or experiment. Again, that, for the most part, seems to have gone by the wayside. Now everybody just cries out science, right? You, you hear that all the time. And they say you can't question science. They say that as science finds explanations of natural phenomena, God becomes smaller and smaller and more insignificant. And as science advances and we realize that everything can be verified by uh, the use of test tubes, ultimately we resolved or ultimately resolved to scientific fact, the necessity of God is eliminated because now science is predominant. You know, once God was the Almighty in most people's minds, and now science has become the Almighty. In fact, in India, when we were there, they now talk about the goddess of science. It has become a fanatical religious system. And this has been drummed into our heads over the decades that science is preeminent and God does not exist. And believers are faced with a supposed conflict between science and Scripture. We are told that Christianity is scientifically unrespected, that it doesn't gain the respect of the scientific world because it, it makes non-scientific uh, statements and, and scientific blunders. And the world says that you have to choose either science or religion, particularly Christianity. You can't have both, either the facts of science or the fantasy of Scripture. But you can't have both of them together. They don't exist together. And therefore, they have chosen to take Scripture and God out of our learning centers. Again, we need to ask the question, who does that benefit and the answer is Satan, because that's a result he wants from his Genesis 3 attack on God's word. Did God really say? You know, the rally cry again today is the word science. Science is now uh, just spoken out there to end discussion. Don't question us. Follow science, they say. Just don't ask us to prove the science. We don't hear the term empirical science much because empirical science is objective, it's absolute, it is certain, and keeps disproving the other science. R.N. Williams, a Welsh professor of the philosophy of religion and principal of the Presbyterian United Theological College in Wales, 
says, said this, A great difference exists between science and what may be called scientism, by which we mean the theories of a scientist who is wearing spectacles with philosophically tinted lenses. That goes back to that Merriam-Webster second definition of science, right? A system or method reconciling practical ends with scientific laws. But now it's flipped where they, where they are reconciling scientific laws to their practical ends. In reality, listen carefully, in reality, there is no conflict between the Bible and true science. It's true that Bible doesn't use scientific jargon, but that doesn't make it non-scientific. The Bible talks in everyday language so that we can all understand. One commentator wrote, The conflict comes when science stops being science and starts being religion. You see, science, by its very definition, can only deal with that which is observable, that which is reproducible. And whenever it gets outside of a reproducible experimental fact and starts trying to talk about origins and destinies, it becomes religion because it can't be observed. And there, the conflict lies. So the conflict, therefore, is not between science and the Bible. The conflict is between science and scientism. So the question before us this morning, has in science already disproved the Bible? That's what so many people believe. That's the lie that has been told over and over and over and over over the years. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who are falling into that trap of deceit, coming from doubt. Did God really say? Now, I want to test the assumption this morning that science and Christianity are in conflict and that you can only have one or the other. And I want to test the assumption that as science finds explanations of natural phenomena, God becomes smaller and smaller and less and less significant. And and does this have any effect on the concept of the inspiration of, of Scripture? What I believe we're going to see is that God, through the Holy Spirit, did indeed inspire the biblical writers thousands of years ago because they wrote about things that they shouldn't have have any knowledge about whatsoever. So, are you ready? I'm going to stretch you a little bit this morning as I've been stretched, as I've been studying this. And as we look at a number of different examples from Scripture and from science. So, buckle up. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed in God, at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. What does that mean? What in the world are they talking about? I doubt the writer of the Hebrews understood what that phrase meant. Things that we can see are made out of things we can't see. Well, Today, with scientific technology, that statement actually makes a lot of sense, perfect sense, because today we know that matter is made up of things we can't see by the naked eye, which are what? Atoms? Huh, isn't that interesting? According to science, the Bible was right. Did you know that in our entire human skeleton, 
Scientists have discovered that there is only one bone in our entire body that has a capability of growing back if you remove it. Keith Moore and Arthur Daly in their book, Clinically Oriented Anatomy, 4th edition, Philadelphia, 1999, page 64, writes this, Although all bones can repair themselves, ribs can regenerate themselves. Now, do you think it's really a coincidence that in Genesis, God removed specifically a rib from Adam to make Eve from that rib? Now, Adam lived to be about 930 years old. Genesis was written about 3,500 years ago, way before this medical fact was ever discovered. Now, to be fair, we have no idea if Adam's rib actually grew back, and the Scripture doesn't tell us. But if he did, the rib is the one bone that could have grown back if you remove it. Now, at the time that Jeremiah was written, it was commonly understood that there were a limited number of stars. I'm, I'm going to be going all over the place here with, with different science things, okay? Limited number of stars that we knew and that we knew how many stars there were. As a matter of fact, Hippocrates, before the invention of the telescope, char- chartered a little over a thousand stars. But Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 22 tells us that there are a countless number of stars in the sky. Do you know that even with a Hubble telescope and the best technology today, the evolutionary scientists, the secular community, the astronomers, the astrophysicists still don't know how many stars that there are? Isn't that interesting? Science is saying, the Bible's right. At the time the Judges was written, no one had any clue that the stars actually moved. They just assumed they were fixed in their position. That's that's what they looked like. That's what they when we go out at night, that's what they looked like. They're not moving, except if you see a falling star. But Judges 5, verse 20 references the stars in their courses. In other words, their paths in the way that they move. It made no sense to them then. But it makes perfect sense to us today. So science is saying the Bible was right. At the time Job was written, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Zechariah, no one had any concept of the universe expanding or stretching out. But in Job chapter 9, 8, Isaiah 42, 5, Jeremiah 51, 15, Zechariah 12, 1, we read about God stretching out the heavens. Again, that wouldn't have made any sense thousands of years ago when that was written, but it makes perfect sense today because that's what the astronomers have found. Because science is saying, the Bible's right. What about the idea of a round earth? For centuries, as we know, it was thought to be flat perhaps sitting on some kind of foundational pillars or on the back of elephants. If you look in some of these scriptures from other, other religions, you'll, you'll find those, those stories. So how strange would it have been for people to be reading Job 26.7, about 1800 B.C., where God says that he suspends the earth over nothing? Wouldn't it made sense to them? They had to make... a. Had, didn't, couldn't have made sense excuse me, to them then, but now, of course, it makes perfect sense. We don't even question it. 
Interestingly enough, Psalm 103, verse 12, tells us that God has removed our sins as far as what? The east is from the west. We all know that verse. It's a great verse. We love that verse. But have you ever stopped to think about that? Now remember, at the time the Psalms were written, most people thought the earth was flat. So removing something from the east to the west on a flat earth, there's a finite distance. But if the earth was round, which people didn't know at the time, removing something from the east to west was an infinite process. It never stopped. It's rather interesting, isn't it? God didn't say he'd remove our sins from the, as far as the north to the south, because if you travel north, you get to the North Pole, you're, you're heading south. There, there's a definite distinction between north and south. Psalm 103.12 only makes sense if it's a round earth. There are other references, but one that caught my attention was Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 5, where it talks about a sunrise and a sunset. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. People say, ah, see, there. Everybody knows that the sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. We're talking about the earth rotation here. But then that's kind of a hypocritical argument today, isn't it? Because what do we refer to as? The sun rise and the sun sets. Nobody goes out and says, oh, look at the beauty of the earth rotation this morning. We talk about the sunrise, sunset, because it's what we see, it's what we perceive. But God knew. And so he had Solomon and Job write about his round earth, which rotated. Did you know that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon about 935 B.C.? Job was written about 1800 B.C., and we're 1800 to 2000 B.C. When did science figure this out, that the earth was round? It was Aristotle who declared that the earth was a sphere in 350 B.C., Isn't that interesting? That's 600 years after the Bible had already referenced it in Ecclesiastes, and it's 1,500 years after the Bible already referenced it back in the book of Job. 1,500 years before science finally caught up and figured it out. Fascinating, isn't it? Science saying that the Bible is right. At the time of Hebrews... When that was written, no one had any concept of entropy. Who knows what entropy is? I didn't either until I looked it up. This is the concept of the earth and universe wearing out, wearing down. But Hebrews 1, 10, 11 specifically talks about that happening. In the beginning, Lord, he says, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. Listen, they will all wear out like a garment. We now know from the second law of thermodynamics that this is the case, and that was only discovered in 1824. Again, science says, huh, the Bible's right. At the time Ecclesiastes was written, no one had any concept of the evaporation of water, or what they now call the hydraulic cycle. The earliest this was actually known was again by Aristotle in 350 B.C., At Ecclesiastes 1.7, 700 years before that, we read, All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. 
And also in Job, in chapter 36, 27, 28, it says he draws up the drops of water. We, we can't see drops of water being, being drawn up into the sky. Neither of those statements make any sense at all unless you understand the hydraulic cycle and the evaporation of water. We understand that now, so when we read it, ah, it makes sense. We don't even question it, and we move on. But that scientific fact was way before its time in Scripture. And again, science is saying the Bible is right. At the time Leviticus was written, it was common belief in medicine that death was in the blood. If someone was sick, they do what they used to call a bloodletting. And that's what we, that was what was believed conventionally back in the time of Le- Leviticus. And that's where um, you, you would attach a bunch of leeches and kind of drain out the blood, trying to get all the uh, bad stuff out of there. But today we, don't, we know that's uh, bad medicine, except in a few very specific cases where you're trying to get an increase of blood flow going. But that's what they believed conventionally back in the time of Le- Leviticus and had been used down through the ages. They even tried to use that on uh, George Washington on his deathbed, apparently. But what do we see in Leviticus? Chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, not the death. And of course, today we know that oxygen and proteins and vitamins and antibodies are all, all of those. Life is actually carried in the blood. It took a while. Science finally figured it out. And science says... The Bible's right. When Jonah was written, people assumed the ocean floors were flat. No one had any clue that there were mountains on ocean floors. We know that now, thanks to sonar. Yet Jonah chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 says, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. We would say to the foot of the mountains. What mountains? The mountains on the ocean floor. When did the great mankind discover this? Reading in the Adventure Journal, and I quote, Well into the 1950s, many scientists assumed the seabed was featureless. Beginning in 1957, Marie Tharp and her research partner Bruce Heason began publishing the first comprehensive maps that showed the main features of the ocean bottom, mountains, valleys, and trenches. 1957. Today, with the use of satellite technology, look what they're finding. Mountains all over the place in the ocean. Just eight years ago, 2014, over 15,000 new mountains have recently been found. Guess what science is doing? Saying the Bible is right. At the time Job was written, no one had any clue that there were springs on the ocean floor. We know that now, but that wasn't actually discovered until the 1970s. They did that through the deep diving research submarines. We, we know now from oceanographers that there are actually a lot of springs on the ocean floor. But Job, Job chapter 38, verse 16, about 4,000 years ago, referenced the springs of the sea. Talking about the ocean, God says to Job, Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? 
or walked in the recesses of the deep? Again, making no sense to the people of the time. Only God knew that. If you go all the way back to Genesis, to the time of the worldwide flood of Noah's ark, we read in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forward, forth. But suddenly in the 1970s, science says, interesting, the Bible, the Bible makes sense. It's right, there are springs on the ocean floor. No one had any clue thousands of years ago that life actually officially begins at conception. At the moment of conception, you have a new human being. The entire genetic information for that human being is built into that fertilized egg at that point. I read an article in the Science Daily that pulls together the latest research news. And an article entitled, Study Reveals the Genetic Startup of a Human Embryo, Data September 15, 2015, it says this, and I quote, An international team of scientists led from Sweden's Karolinska Institute has for the first time mapped all the genes that are activated, important word, that are activated in the first few days of a fertilized human egg. The study, which is being published in the journal Nature Communications, provides an in-depth understanding of early embryonic development in humans. We know that scientifically now, although the scientific world is doing their best to deny that. Remember Merriam-Webster's definition of science, a system or method reconciling practical ends with scientific laws? Now, when Jeremiah was, was written, or when the psalm was, Psalms were written, the writers didn't know then when we read about life beginning in conception at, in the Bible. Jeremiah 1.5, these are God's words to Jeremiah when he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I pointed you as a prophet to the nations. God had chosen that person in the womb. Psalm 139, verse 13 and 15 to 15, For you created in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God is working, knitting him together in his mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together into the depths of the earth. This obviously is very relevant to what's going on today. Folks, the Holocaust, the American Holocaust of the killing of millions of human beings that God created and knit together in mother's wombs. Did you know that Exodus chapter 21, verse 22 and 23 actually gives a penalty for killing an unborn child? If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Do you hear what that's saying? If you cause the death of an unborn baby, the penalty in the Old Testament was death. That's how seriously God takes abortion. This has nothing to do with the rights of the mother the right to choose comes before you have sex. 
This has everything to do with the life of the child. Okay, different subject. Give you a little bit of whiplash. Here's a fun fact. What about the size of Noah's Ark? Crazy, right? How could anyone, 4,500 years ago, know how to build a boat that would carry two of every kind of animal? And that, that word kind is very important, and we'll come back to that later in the series. Noah's Ark had very specific dimensions given by God. And the dimensions were a six-to-one ratio of length versus width. Today, you can talk to any structural engineer, except perhaps Dan in our interview from last week, and they'll tell you it's been discovered that the absolute best ratio for building a seaworthy craft that's large enough and is going to hold a lot of cargo would be what? Six to one ratio. Huh, isn't that interesting? How did they know this in Genesis chapter 6? How did Noah know about these dimensions? It had to have been God. Even the Smithsonian Institute itself, which is pro-evolution, they wrote in one of their journals about some evolutionary engineers who said, and I quote, we've got to admit, they don't like it, we've got to admit We don't believe in the story of Noah's Ark, but the dimensions given in the Bible are the exact, perfect dimensions to cause it to be seaworthy. Isn't that interesting? So thousands of years after the event of Noah's Ark, science has figured out that the Bible was right. Actually, the dimensions are perfect. Sounds like our God, doesn't it? Just a couple more things. There's there's so much that I I can't cover because this is is not going to be a three-year series. Something from astronomy, something from archaeology. We find something very interesting in Job chapter 38 about astronomy. Have you ever heard of the star cluster called Pleiades? Yes, many of you have. Also known as Seven Sisters Star Cluster. The Pleiades star cluster is interesting because it's gravitationally bound, which means that the stars are bound together by their own gravitational pull. They're not going to be spread apart. And this has been fairly recently discovered using the Hubble telescope by astronomers and astrophysicists. Isabel Lewis of the United States Naval Observatory, speaking about Pleiades, said astronomers have identified 250 stars as actual members of this group, all sharing in a common motion and drifting through space in the same direction. Then a man by the name of Dr. Robert Trumbler, a Swiss-American astronomer, says, there is no doubt that the Pleiades are not a temporary or accidental agglomeration of stars, but a system in which the stars are bound together by a close kinship. Now, hang on to that just a, just a minute, and I'll, I'll, we'll get back to that. But you all heard of the Orion's Belt, right? Orion's Belt is different in that the stars of the belt are not gravitationally bound and are actually in the process of loosening, and they say will eventually be going their separate ways. Garrett Service, a noted astronomer, wrote about the bands of Orion in his book, Curiosities of the Sky. 
And he says this, quote, The great figure of Orion appears to be, the, be more lasting, not because his stars are physically connected, but because of their great distance. At the present time, this consists of an almost perfect straight line, a row of second-magnitude stars, about equally spaced and of the most striking beauty. In the course of time, however, the two right-hand stars, Mintaka and Al-Nilam, bet you didn't know those names, will approach each other and form a naked eye double. But the third, Alnita, will drift away eastward so the belt will no longer exist. So they're fairly recent discoveries that Orion's belt is loosening and Pleiades is gravitationally bound together. Now you might say, yeah, so what does that have to do with anything? Listen to what God says to Job as he tries to get him to understand how limited his knowledge is. Now God's basically dressing down Job at the, at, the, at the end of Job. I'm God, you're not. Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? I can. He, and he asks Job here, can you, listen, can you bind the chains of Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Stop and think about that a minute. A book, the book of Job was written 4,000 years Ago, and no one had any clue that the Pleiades star clusters were actually gravitationally bound, held together. No one had any idea that Orion's belt was loosening or will eventually completely loosen and separate. We know that now because it takes precision instruments and specialized telescopes to determine that. What a coincidence, right? That Pleiades and the Orion's belt happened to be mentioned specifically years ago in Job chapter 38? Once again, science is saying the Bible's right. Oh, one more star thing. In the next verse, Job 38, verse 32, it says this Can you bring forth the constellations in your seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? What does that mean? There's a constellation known as Arcturus. Many of you have probably heard of that. Or the Great Bear, which is one of the brightest stars in the sky. Fairly easy to see in the naked eye. It looks like a, a bright single star. But guess what? In 1970, only 50 years ago, astronomers discovered that there were 52 additional stars tagging along with Arcturus wherever it went. Kind of like a mother duck with her ducklings or a bear with a mess of cubs. We didn't know that until 50 years ago. But Job wrote about that 4,000 years ago. Huh, how about that? Science says the Bible's right. What about archaeology? Folks, there is so much from archaeological digs that verifies the Bible, it is amazing. Let me just give you one this morning. Remember the story of Samson? You remember that. At the end of his life, um, he's, because of his sin, he's lost all of his strength. He shaved, uh, his head was shaved. He, he's in prison. Um, and si- Samson prays and asks God to give him his strength back one last time to be able to wreak uh, his revenge on the Philistines. So God does that, and unknowingly to that fact, the Philistines have this great feast and they bring Samson out to ridicule him, make, make fun of him. And he's taken to the center of the temple and put between two columns, two pillars. 
And he asked the slaves to put one hand on, the, on, on each pillar, and Judges 16.30 says, Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Critics have been saying it's all a myth. Totally doubted the story. They can't find any temples that were built like that. They've argued that the Philistine temple would never have had two central pillars like that, supporting the whole structure, since it wasn't a typical architectural design in the Middle Eastern uh, temples. But after the remains of two Philistine temples have been excavated, guess what they found? Both had two main pillars supporting the roof. One's actually in part of the modern city of Tel Aviv. This was just in the 1970s that they discovered this. Archaeologist Bryant Wood explains the significance of the discoveries, and he says, Two Philistine temples have been uncovered by archaeologists. Both temples share a unique design. The roof was supported by two central pillars. The pillars were made of wood and rested on stone support bases, with the pillars being about six feet apart, a strong man could dislodge them from their stone bases and bring the entire roof crashing down. The archaeological findings match the biblical story perfectly and attest to the plausibility of the account. Again, science is saying the Bible is right. Over and over and over again, science proves the Bible right rather than proving it wrong. Did you know, this is fascinating, that they have discovered fresh, unfossilized, well-preserved dinosaur bones. And even whole dinosaurs. How is that possible after 65 million years? But these have been discovered by evolutionary scientists and have been documented in the Journal of Paleontology, one of the most prestigious evolutionary paleontological journals. If you want to look it up, it's actually in volume 61, number 1, 1986-87 edition, on pages 198 to 200. It's written by Dr. Kyle Davies, a renowned evolutionary paleontologist. On top of that, do you know that they've actually discovered soft tissue in dinosaur bones? How is that possible? Soft tissue. We're talking about blood vessels. They all break down. They're biodegradable. They all break down at the molecular level within a few hundred years at most. In some cases, they could be perhaps buried deep enough where you might be able to get a few thousand years out of soft tissue, but never close to a million years or 65 million years. So there's no way that any soft tissue should be found in dinosaurs that existed 65 million years ago, let alone 265 million years ago, which some are reported to be. Folks, these are found by evolutionary scientists. It was in 2005 that Dr. Mary Schweitzer broke open a T-Rex bone. Apparently they're trying to get it on a helicopter. It wouldn't fit, and they had to break it to be able to fit in the helicopter to take it somewhere. And when they broke that open, soft tissue was found inside of a T-Rex. The Smithsonian 
in May of 2006, reported on this same discovery of the T-Rex bone. Here's, here's the headline of the SmithsonianInstitute.com, May edition 2006. Headline, Dinosaur Shocker. Probing a 68 million year old T-Rex, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, world-renowned evolutionary paleontologist and dinosaur expert, stumbled upon astonishing signs of life that may radically change our view of the ancient beasts. Fascinating. So what does this have to do with the Bible? If science is now telling us that dinosaurs very likely lived along with humans just a few thousand years ago because of the discovery of soft tissue, then Isaiah chapter 27.1 makes so much more sense when he writes the Levi- the, the, uh, the, about the Leviathan, the gliding serpent. That could very well be a pterodactyl which Wikipedia describes as the first pterosaur to be named and identified as a flying reptile. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 22, uh, it makes so much more sense when we read, Listen, the report is coming, a great commotion from the land of the north. It will make the towns of Judah desolate, and a den of, the Hebrew word is tanin. Strong's Concordance in Hebrew Dictionary says Tanin refers to some sort of dragon, sea monster, or dinosaur. Now, to be clear, there is another Hebrew word that we find, Tanim, ends with an M instead of an N, which could refer to jackals. Modern translations, unfortunately, have just gone with the word jackal for all the, the references. But this dinosaur creature, because if you look at the descriptions, it's not, they're not describing jackals. This dinosaur creature, this tanin, is referred to many times in Scripture. You can, you can take a note of all these times that that word is being used. And there's one other reference that I want to look at before we wrap this up, which now makes sense in light of scientific discovery. Job chapter 40 describes the behemoth. You've heard that, right? The behemoth, behemoth in Hebrew. Strong's Concordance says perhaps an extinct dinosaur such as a Diplodocus or Brachiosaurus. Listen how God describes this creature to Job. Verses 15 to 18, Job 40. Look at behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox, What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs are, are like rods of iron. Turns out there are actual cave drawings of dinosaurs that people actually drew. How would they know what they looked like if they hadn't seen it with their own eyes? They weren't doing archaeological digs. These archaeological drawings look very similar to a bronchiosaurus. So is this even possible that dinosaurs lived along with people? Actually, science, real science says yes, verifying that the Bible what the Bible already described. God said to Job, 
Look at behemoth. We remember that phrase. The second phrase I, I think we often just kind of skim over. Look at behemoth which I made along with you. He didn't make those 65 million years ago before he made man. Job couldn't look at it. When God says look at it, Job couldn't look at it if he, didn't, he couldn't see it. Science keeps discovering what the Bible already stated thousands of years ago. You know, we began this morning by saying the world tries to say that as science finds explanations of natural phenomena, God becomes smaller and smaller. I'm sorry, I find the opposite to be true. I tend to agree with Paul when he said in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Science keeps revealing God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, we read this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. We will never know the extent of God's wisdom and the extent of God's knowledge. The depth of His riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We're just now beginning to get some understanding of the depths of the ocean. Or the height of the skies or, or, or into space, the expanse of the stars. We haven't come close yet even to that. How unsearchable his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing. But it's all laid out in Scripture. And it had to be the Holy Spirit inspiring the writers because there was no way they themselves had the understanding of so many things. Going back to the verse that Luke read for us this morning, 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, all Scripture from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did God really say? Yeah, he did. Folks, our God is an amazing and an awesome God. Father, this morning, I pray that as, as we look into your scripture, that, that you would give us that confidence that you are this amazing, awesome God. And your, your, your wisdom is beyond understanding, but so far greater than, than ours. We get to the point where we think that we are so smart. And your foolishness is far smarter than our greatest wisdom. Father, I pray that we would have more and more confidence in your word and the truths of your word, not, not just scientific stuff, but all your precepts, all of your teaching, all of your truths. And I pray that you'd help us to apply those to our lives and depend on those, no matter what the world is saying to us about you and about your word and, uh, or anything else, trying to bring that doubt in. Satan still is working in that doubt area. Father, give us that confidence, greater confidence in you and your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.